Lord, we lift up this time to you, God, and uh, Lord, we come here um, with uh, eager anticipation to hear from you, to hear from the living God, Lord, and we're so blessed, we're so privileged that you, the God that created us, wants to speak to us, and you want to get things across to us, and it's so amazing as we dive into your word filled with the Spirit, how you do bring your word uh, to life, and how we uh, start to pick up some things that you're trying to show us, that you're trying to teach us, uh, and some things that you're trying to remind us of. Lord, so I pray that you would do that once again tonight, that we would hear from you, God, that that we would also uh, respond to what you're speaking to us. God, speak to our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Uh, so if you recall, in 1 Samuel chapter 31, that's the last chapter, we see Saul was slain. So then in 2 Samuel chapter 1, it would seem that this is a really good thing for David, right? Now God's promise for David to become the king of Israel, now it can finally happen. We see this Amalekite come and claim that he killed Saul. I explained I believe he was lying. And David doesn't respond the way that we would think. Or at least the way that the Amalekite would think. He thought he was bringing David, yes, sorrowful news. But also good news. Because now David can take his place as the king of Israel. But David does not respond that way. And he mourns. And not only that, he has the Amalekite killed. And the Amalekite likely wasn't killed for something he did. He was likely killed for something he said. Which we talked about a little bit. The weight of our words. And the Lord holds us accountable to not just the things that we do. But the things that we say. So after David goes through this mourning process ending at the end of first Sam or second Samuel chapter one, we're going to get into second Samuel chapter two. And in this chapter, it's kind of like the moment we've all been waiting for, right? David is finally going to be anointed as king, but he's not going to be anointed as king of Israel, at least not yet. He's going to be anointed as king of Judah, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, the tribe that he came from. And we're going to see that though David is the rightful ruler of Israel, there are still going to be those that don't submit to David's rule. They don't submit to his reign. They want nothing to do with David. They want to be lords over themselves, if you will. We're going to look at this text and notice, focusing primarily on the fact that Israel is a divided nation. Okay, this is the title of the teaching, a kingdom divided, a kingdom divided. Now, the kingdom of David and the kingdom of Ishbosheth, okay, this is one of Saul's sons who we'll talk about in a moment, represent two kingdoms. The kingdom of David represents the kingdom of God, okay? The kingdom of Ishbosheth represents the kingdom of the world. And we'll understand this deeper as we unpack this passage, but we also see with these two kingdoms, this kingdom that's divided, it also represents the internal battle that we all face between the flesh and the spirit. We'll briefly go over that towards the end, okay? There are a lot of really cool connections here. We'll get through the whole chapter tonight, but if you would with me, picking it up in Second Samuel 
chapter 2, verse 1. So I'm in the middle of transitioning Bibles. Uh, has anybody been there where you're like, okay, my Bible's about had it. Uh, I need to start using a different Bible. Like my pages are all like falling out and things like that. Um, and I was starting to, I started using a new Bible and like it doesn't open very well. So tonight, like before I, I, I actually brought both Bibles with me and I'm like debating, I'm like, I know I need to start breaking in the new one, but I'm so attached to the old one. So like even like this page that I'm on, you see, like it's all folded up. I don't know how I'm going to read this. Um, I'm really attached to this Bible. I've had it for a while. Um, so you can pray for me for that, that I let go of my Bible and, and, and start using the other Bible. Okay, just a, a personal struggle that I'm walking through right now. Second Samuel chapter two, verse one. It happened after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, where shall I go up? And he said to Hebron. So David took the time to mourn, the proper time to mourn. We see that mourning was sincere, but now he knows it's time to move forward. Okay, I'm done with the mourning process. Not that I'm not sad anymore, but I know God still has something for me next. And what does he do? He simply asks God what's next. This is the first of five points. The kingdom of God seeks God's will. The kingdom of God seeks God's will. David representing the kingdom of God. He's seeking the will of God as to where he should go next. What should he do? He didn't just say, hey, God, bless the path that I'm already choosing to walk down. He didn't say, hey, God, I'm going to go to Hebron. I want you to bless that path. And sometimes we can do this. You know, we can have our plan. We can have our agenda. This is what I'm going to do today, God. And I ask you to bless what I already plan to do. But wait a minute, is that really how we should go about it? We see David, he's asking God what he should do. Not just asking God to bless what he already decided to do. He truly wants to do what God wants him to do. And this is the heart that we should all have. That we truly are seeking first the kingdom of God. Seeking first God's will and God's desire for our lives. Not just big picture, but on a daily basis. It says in Matthew chapter 6 verse 33... Matthew 6, verse 33, it says just that. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. I believe David, and we saw him kind of uh, turn it around in uh, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 29. But I believe David, because we've seen he hasn't always sought God's will, right? He was in the land of the Philistines for a year and four months, not where God really wanted him to be. And he got himself in all kinds of trouble. I believe throughout this process that God has been breaking him and finally David is in this place of surrender that he doesn't want to do anything other than God's will. He doesn't want to find himself back in the land of the Philistines getting ready to slaughter his own people once again or something similar. See, this is a place that we all need to find ourselves. I think in uh, Jeremiah chapter 42, if you want to turn there, in Jeremiah chapter 42, we see that the nation of Israel was brought to this place during the Babylonian exile. Or at least they appeared to be. Okay, But we're going to look at a verse here from Jeremiah um, chapter 42. 
if you would with me now just a a little kind of brief explanation of jeremiah basically jeremiah was saying among other things that hey you need to submit to the authority of king nebuchadnezzar okay that's why he walked around with the yoke around his neck you need to submit to his authority this is discipline from god okay he's putting you under the authority of nebuchadnezzar but what they keep doing they kept rebelling against the authority of nebuchadnezzar so nebuchadnezzar kept coming back three different times and taking a bunch of the people people from israel and jeremiah's like i told you to submit if you wouldn't rebelled we'd all still be here in israel specifically jerusalem so finally these people keep fighting against god's will fighting against god's will they're uh, uh finally brought to a place if you would with me it's jeremiah chapter 42 where the people say this in verse 5 so they said to jeremiah Let the Lord be a true and faithful witness between us if we do not do according to everything which the Lord your God sends us by you. Whether it is pleasing or displeasing, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God to whom we send you that it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord our God. They're there, it appears. Whether it's pleasing or displeasing, whatever God tells us to do, even if it isn't our first pick, even if it's our last pick, we want to do it. We're so tired of fighting against God. We're so tired of wrestling with God. We just realize He actually does know what's best for us. And we want to do what He wants us to do. Now, the funny thing is, in the next chapter, they don't end up doing what God told them to do. Uh, believe it or not, but we can pull so much from that verse. And that's really the place where we should all be. God wants to bring us to that place of surrender that we truly are. God, <laughs> I'm not trying to make this thing work out myself i'm not trying to fight for this specific thing that i want anymore if you don't want uh, want that for me whether it's pleasing or displeasing whatever you tell me i want to do because my i know my way isn't the right way and i know where my way leads me i want to do things your way again it's that heart of surrender this is where david's at god what do you want me to do so he inquires of the lord and he asks him a specific question he says shall i go up second samuel chapter 2 verse 1 shall i go up to any of the cities of judah now remember right now he's in the land of ziklag okay technically that was philistine territory the philistines gave david the land of ziklag but from that point forward, Ziklag becomes uh, Israel's territory. It becomes part of the tribe of Judah. So uh, David right now, he's in a gray area. Okay, it's technically uh, Philistine territory, but it's been given to him. So, And he's a Hebrew, so it's kind of Hebrew territory. But essentially what he's asking God, do you want me to go back home? Okay, You want me to go back closer to home, where I'm from, the tribe of Judah. This was the specific question, and the Lord is going to answer him specifically. It says in verse 1, And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, Where shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. The Lord gave him specific instructions. Now, David doesn't know, or at least I don't believe he knows from reading the text, why God is calling him to Hebron. He's calling him there for a very special purpose. I don't think in David's mind he really cares why God is calling him to Hebron. He just truly wants to do what God is asking him to do, and God is asking him to go to Hebron. Now, Hebron is rich in history, okay? It's basically... um, 
one of the primary lands of the patriarchs. We see uh, uh, Abraham and Sarah were buried there. We see Isaac and Rebekah were buried there. We see Jacob and Leah were buried there. So this land, it's got a lot of rich history. And it's almost a little foreshadowing thing going on. You remember the promise that God made to Abraham, right? That he would bless the nations through his seed. Well, that promise got carried on through Isaac and then Jacob and then through who? Judah and David's of the lineage of Judah. Okay, there's a little foreshadowing. David is going to be the one that carries on that promise. And the Lord is going to clarify that later on. So David, it says in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2. So David went up there. And his two wives also, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. So David obeyed this, uh, despite the fact that he didn't know what awaited him, right? We see this theme throughout the Bible. We were talking about it on Sunday. He doesn't know exactly what's going to go on in Hebron. He doesn't know the blessings that God has for him, but nevertheless, he ends up going. Just as we were mentioning on Sunday, it's very similar to Abraham, right? In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, it says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. This is what the journey is all about. It's not just about uh, 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 like making calculated risks and like, okay, if I do this, this will happen. And if I do that, that will happen. There's always risk involved in our walk of faith. We don't know what's to come. We can try to plan. We can try to be prepared as best as we can. Not that we shouldn't. But we really don't know what's going to happen next. And we don't know why God calls us to different seasons. Why He calls us to different places. Why He asks us specific things. Why He puts us in certain scenarios. But we see that God, He often calls us out to the unknown. Why? So that we learn to depend on Him. Because that's really what it's all about. And that's where David's at right now. He's depending on the Lord, walking in obedience. Second Samuel chapter 2, verse 3. And David brought up the men who were with him, every man with his household. So they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. Hear that? They dwelt in the cities of Hebron. Why did they dwell in the cities of Hebron? Because God told them to. But this idea of dwelling is what? I'm here for a time. I'm here for a lengthy period. Okay, I'm likely not just passing through if God's calling me to dwell. It doesn't say this. It doesn't say that God, that David got to Hebron and immediately when he got there, he asked, what's next, God? What's next? What do you got for me? Like, okay, I did this thing. What's the next thing? See, we often will do that. We always want to know what's next, right? God told me to go here, so I did that. Now what? Now what do you want me to do? Well, if God didn't tell me anything different, then just do what you've been doing. When you don't know what to do, do what you know to do, right? Stay in the same place. If he hasn't called you anywhere else, that's exactly what we see David doing here. He knows that God is going to have him here for a significant time period. He knows he's called to dwell. He knows he's called to plant roots. He knows he's called to grow exactly where God had planted him until the Lord tells him what's next. Second Samuel chapter 2, verse 4. Then the men of Judah came... 
And there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, the men of Jabesh-Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. So this was God's primary purpose in bringing David to Judah, specifically Hebron. Now, there's no indication, again, that David knew this was going to happen, but this was all part of God's plan to anoint David as the king of Judah. See, sometimes God calls us to specific places or specific seasons to solidify our calling. Okay? Yes, David was already anointed by God as the king of Israel as a young man, but now that anointing is being noticed by the public. The people of Judah are recognizing um, David as their king. God brought David to a certain place once again to solidify that calling. And so often the Lord will do that with us. He'll call us to certain seasons. He'll call us to certain places to solidify the calling that we already know he's placed on our life. Why? Because sometimes we question it. Sometimes we're unsure. Sometimes there's an insecurity. So God says, I want you to come here because I want you to recognize the calling that I've placed on my on your life. I want you to solidify it in your hearts. This is truly something that I've called you to for David. It was becoming the king of Judah. See, the kingship was just a promise before this. And it was, yes, something that God recognized but it hadn't practically played out up until this point specifically. The anointing in Bethlehem likely happened about 15 to 20 years before this, most scholars say. 15 to 20 years, okay? We all talk about, yeah, God's promises, sometimes they're delayed, right? He told him he was going to be king. 15 to 20 years ago, David's been waiting for this moment. And you got to think about what David walked through. He was in the wilderness. He was almost killed by Saul. He was almost stoned by his men. There's nothing that indicates this promise was going to be fulfilled. Nevertheless, the Lord fulfills it in David. David, he knows it wasn't his place to fulfill it. David wasn't trying to take the throne. We see this character quality of patience. David waits and waits and waits for God to fulfill his promise. David knows he can't fulfill God's promises to him. That doesn't mean that he doesn't have some sort of responsibility in walking in obedience along the way. But ultimately, it was God who would fulfill the promise. He waited till God put him in that right position. God had to do a work in David throughout that time in the wilderness fleeing from Saul. Primarily, he was trying to produce that dependence in David, that trust in David, because that was one thing that set David apart from Saul. David depended on God. David trust God. David inquired of God. Saul, we don't see him depend on God. We don't see him trust God. And when he does inquire of the Lord, it's insincere as we studied that in 1 Samuel uh, throughout most of the book. But this is also super significant because for the first time in history, God's chosen king is reigning over his people. This is the first time in history this happens. Remember, God was supposed to be the king of Israel. But we see in Deuteronomy chapter 17, God recognized that Israel was going to want a king someday. And he gave some credentials about what that king was supposed to look like, his behavior, what would happen, all these different things. 
And we know Saul wasn't that person. Saul was the king that the people wanted. David was the king that God wanted. But God allowed the people to get the king that they wanted so they would realize that the king that they want, they don't really want him. They don't want him. He's not going to pan out. He's not going to be the leader that you thought he was. Yes, he's strong and good looking and a great warrior, but he only cares for number one. He only cares for himself. Contrary to that, we see David, a man after God's own heart. And because he had a heart after God, he had a heart after people. So we see God establish his kingdom through David. This is foreshadowing of the kingdom to come. And this is point number two. His throne will be established. His throne will be established. I'm not talking about David's throne. I'm talking about the Lord's throne. It will be established. Remember, God promised that Jesus would come back. He would rule. He would reign. His throne would be established on this earth. We see prophecies about that from everywhere, all across the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament. But I want to point you to one in Luke chapter one so we can see that Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise of God establishing his throne literally on earth. In Luke chapter 1, verse 31, it says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Okay? So we see this is a promise that Jesus is that person. He's the one that's going to have his kingdom established on this earth, not just for a time period, but forever, for everlasting, from everlasting to everlasting. When will this happen? Well, we see in Revelation chapter 19 and 20, and also in Zechariah chapter 14, that the Lord is going to come back at the end of the tribulation. He's literally going to stand on the Mount of Olives, and He's going to establish His rule and reign. Then we'll have the thousand-year millennial reign, right? After that, Satan will be released for a brief time period. God's going to make quick work of him and then he'll bring the new heaven and new earth. But the point is, God promised that Jesus would come back with rule and reign. And it's been a long time, right? But just because it's been a long time doesn't mean it's not going to happen. When God promised David that he'd become a king, that was a long time, 15, 20 years until he actually became a king. We recognize that God will be faithful to establish his throne just as he said. So his men in Second Samuel chapter two, verse four, his men told him that it was uh, the men of Jabesh Gilead who were the ones who buried Saul. If you remember back in first Samuel chapter 31, um, the Philistines uh, basically mutilated Saul and the men of Jabesh Gilead went back to get his body, traveled some 20 miles through the night and gave him a proper burial. So these men are, are valiant men, the Bible tells us in first Samuel chapter 31. So David wants to acknowledge these men. In 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 5, 
So David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said to them, you are blessed of the Lord for you have shown this kindness to your Lord to Saul and have buried him. And now may the Lord show kindness and truth to you. I also will repay you this kindness because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strengthened and be valiant for your master Saul is dead. And also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. So David, uh, with compassion and wisdom and a heart for these guys, he he kind of builds them up. He says, hey, hey, I know your king died and I know you cared a lot about him. Uh, and that shows because of the respect you had for him and giving him a proper burial. But not all hope is lost. See, David is a type of savior. He's a type of Christ. He's not the Messiah, but he gives us a picture of Jesus. See, basically what David is saying here, Saul might be dead, but there's still hope because God's made me king over Israel. Just as David is a type of savior, Jesus is obviously the savior. But we also see, when you look at how David communicates to these men, he says, I'll repay you with kindness because you have done this thing. Let your hands be strengthened and be valiant. We see this encouragement. We see how much David truly, sincerely appreciates these men. And what he tries to do is he kind of tries to build them up. This isn't like a, just a political thing. He kind of builds them up and, and he shows, reveals who he really is, uh, reveals his sincere king uh, uh, character. And he kind of tries to draw them in to submit to his kingship. Hey, God's appointed me as King of Judah, you guys are great, you're valiant, I'm showing you kindness. Do you want to recognize my kingship? This is very similar to what the son of David, Jesus, does with us. And this is point number three. He draws us into submission with his character. He draws us into submission with his character. Just like David, Jesus doesn't force anyone to follow him. He doesn't make anyone follow him. He draws us in with loving kindness, the Bible says. The Lord leads us to himself. He draws us with loving kindness. It's not the wrath of God that leads us to repentance. The Bible says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that it's his loving kindness that leads us to repentance. Wow, God didn't give me what I deserve. He bestowed mercy and grace on me. This is a God that I want to follow. This is a God that I want to submit to. That's such the attraction with jesus it's it's his character it's his appeal that he's sovereign he has all power he could crush us in an instant and he doesn't and he loves us and he bestows that grace and mercy on us and he even invites us into this in the gospels if you would with me in matthew chapter 11 in matthew chapter 11 verse 29 or look verse 28 sorry he says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's his character that draws us in. It's the love of Christ. It's the kindness. It's that gentleness. It's the fact that he's a gentleman. He's not a dictator. He could make us follow him, but then that's not love, right? He wants us to desire to follow him. And this is exactly what we see David doing. Hey, this is who I am. God's appointed me king. I'm not going to make you follow me, but if you think I'm worthy to be followed, you can submit to 
my kingship. Now, we don't know how the men responded. The Bible doesn't tell us how these men of Jabesh Gilead ended up responding right now. If they chose to submit to David or not. But we do know what? How we respond. We know how we respond to the son of David when he attempts to draw us into uh, his kingship, his lordship with that loving kindness. His hope, his heart is that we wouldn't take advantage of his love and his grace, but we would allow grace to teach us to repent. We would allow grace to teach us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust that we wouldn't take it for granted, but we would allow it to do what it's supposed to do in our hearts and in our lives. Second Samuel chapter two, verse eight. He says, but Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahananam, and he made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, and over all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. Only the house of Judah followed David. So if you remember Abner, he was uh, Saul's right-hand man after David left. He was the commander of the army of Israel. Okay, we also see that he's actually Saul's cousin. Okay, so he's in the family, right? But he's not a son of Saul. So what he does is he finds this last son of Saul. Now, we see the sons of Saul slain in 1 Samuel chapter 31. And what is likely happening here, because this is the first time, I'm going to call Ishbosheth, I'll probably just refer to him as Ishbo for short, okay? So Ishbo is, this is the first time we're seeing Ishbo in the Bible, right? And the reason probably is, is Ishbo's likely an illegitimate son, okay? Or the son of a concubine. He's not mentioned with the other sons because the other sons are likely legitimate sons. And those sons are dead, but this guy, even if he is a legitimate son, he's still technically a son of Saul. So therefore he does have some right to the throne. So Abner goes and makes Ishbo the king of Israel. So David's king of Judah. Uh, Ishbo is the king of all the other tribes of Israel. Now, this was more than a political move by Abner. We're going to see next week that Abner knew what God said about David and that David was supposed to be king. See, this act of Abner, it is straight rebellion against God's chosen king. It's point number four. Choosing a different king is choosing rebellion. Choosing a different king is choosing rebellion. God made it known. And as we'll see specifically in the next chapter, it was like this was known across the board that the promises that God made to David that he would be the king. So everyone not recognizing those promises and recognizing David's kingship are in a place of rebellion. But a lot of this, it starts with this guy, Abner. See, Abner, he would rather set up a kingdom that benefits him than a kingdom that he can't control. Okay, He doesn't want to submit to a kingdom that's of God that he doesn't have this great position is. And he would rather set up his own kingdom so he has more power. He has more authority. And this is exactly what we do 
when we choose to be kings over our own lives. This is exactly what we do when we set up our own kingdoms. And we can even do it as believers. If, uh, if Jesus is truly my king, then my response is going to, to him is going to be submission. But we have this problem where we end up liking to, to set up our own kingdoms. We have this tendency where we believe or we desire to be our own kings. I don't want to submit to King Jesus. I want to submit to King Tanner. I would rather submit to myself. I think there is more freedom here. And we know that that is a lie from the pits of hell. This is what the people did in Israel early on from the beginning. And this is what the people also did in Israel towards the end of the Bible in the Gospels when Jesus came on the scene. Remember, just before they uh, crucified Jesus, it says in Luke chapter 19, verse 14, they say, we don't want this man to rule over us. We don't want this man to be our king. We make horrible kings. We make even worse gods. Any kingdom that we establish by our own hands is inevitably going to be destroyed. The only kingdom that will last forever is the Lord's kingdom. So we either get a chance to or make a choice to submit to his kingdom or submit to our own kingdom. That's going to be demolished. It's going to be wiped out. If we want to be a part of a kingdom that's going to last, we have to be a part of the Lord's kingdom because it's the only kingdom that will last. So we see Abner, this act of rebellion, set up this separate kingdom that wasn't according to God's will. Now Ishbo, it says he was the king for two years. I love this about David. It doesn't say that David went and tried to take over the kingdom of Israel. He let this just play out. He wasn't once again trying to put himself in that position, trying to capture the throne in his own flesh, and his own strength. He could have just went after Ishbo. We see, we'll see in this text, his men are a lot mightier than the other men of Israel. He could have wiped them out, I believe, no problem, but he didn't. Why? Because he wanted God to put him in that place. He knew it wasn't his place to take the throne on his own. So it says here, if you would with me back in verse 10, that only the house of Judah followed David. Only the house of Judah followed David. This also gives us a picture of the kingdom of God. (laughs) Only a few actually will recognize Jesus' lordship. Only a few, not many. He actually says that himself in Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7, I'm almost there, I can read it for you. Verse 13, Jesus says, Enter the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way it leads to life. And there are few who find it. There are few. We got over 2 billion people in this world that profess to be Christians. But the Bible says there's only going to be few that are actually following Jesus. Now, few could still be in the billions in God's economy. We don't know exactly what a few means. But we do know the qualifications of the few. That the path that the few walk down is a difficult one. It's a narrow one. It's a hard one. It's, it's a lot harder than the other one. When the Lord invites us to submit to Him, He's not inviting us to an easier 
trial-free life. No, he's actually inviting us to a more difficult life. Why? Because he's got a kingdom. There's this other kingdom. There's the kingdom of the world. The kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God are at odds with one another. So when we choose one kingdom, we can rest assured that this other kingdom is going to come after us. And that's the root of so much of the trials and suffering that we walk through in this life. Just as we see only the tribe of Judah, small quantity of people. It's a lot of people, but compared to the uh, all the other 11 tribes, we're talking about a remnant, if you will. Only they recognize David as their king, at least for now. Picking it back up, it's Second Samuel chapter 2, verse 11. It says, In the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. David would solely reign over the house of Judah for seven and a half years. He wasn't initially the king of all of Israel. He was just the king of Judah for seven and a half years. So that's another ad. Okay, so now we're talking uh, 22 to 27 years that has gone by before David actually sees God's promise completely fulfilled. But there's a reason why God is doing this this way. He's basically fulfilling his promise in baby steps. He's fulfilling his promise in baby steps. Why? Maybe David wasn't ready to be king of Israel, especially not as a young man. There are still lessons that need to be learned along the way. God could have just put him in place right away and taken Saul out. He had a reason for this. He was still making his man. He was still preparing his man. We see this is something that the Lord does on a regular basis. We look at uh, Paul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul, perhaps the most powerful apostle that ever lived, wrote half of the New Testament. This guy has profound wisdom and just so many different gifts and teaching and evangelism and his ability to lead and even do miracles. And when we look at Acts, it seems like it's a pretty quick road. When we look at it, we don't look into the text really, and we'll do this on Sundays. But Saul... From the time that he gets appointed, by the time that he gets called into the ministry, remember in Acts chapter 9, Jesus told him, I'll show you how many things you must suffer for my namesake. He was calling him to the ministry. You know how long it was before Paul's ministry actually took off? Probably like 12 to 14 years. Really? At first, if you see in Acts chapter 9, Paul, he goes to preach to some Jews and they won't receive him. They won't receive him. Later on, he goes to Arabia just to learn the gospel from the Lord. He says, no man taught me this. Jesus, by revelation, taught me the gospel. Then he goes to Jerusalem. Is it really effective in ministry once again? Then he goes back to Tarsus. And he might have been doing some ministry in Tarsus, but the Bible doesn't say. And he's in Tarsus for quite some time until finally Barnabas comes and gets him because he needs help in Antioch. The point is, even a guy as gifted as Paul the Apostle, the Lord was fulfilling his promise to him in baby steps. There were phases to this promise. The fulfillment of it didn't happen right off the bat. See, God... So often he uses the present to prep us for the future. And we got to recognize that where we're at right now, in this current time period, 
If we're truly seeking the will of God and in the will of God, He's using this season to prepare us for something that He has for us down the road. So we got to make the most of it. We don't see any indication of discontentment in David. We don't see him looking for other opportunities. We see him growing where he's planted. We see him dwelling and growing in this role as king of Judah. Yeah, he knows this thing is coming down the road, but he's not pursuing to become king of Israel. He's just pursuing God. And he knows God is going to make him one day king of Israel. It's not our pursuit of fulfilling promises that gets promises fulfilled. It's our pursuit of God and allowing him to fulfill his promises to us in the proper time period. So David, he's there seven years and six months. The text continues. Second Samuel chapter two. Verse 12. Now Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahananam to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. So they sat down, one on one side of the pool, and the other on the other side of the pool. So what we see here is that Abner, he crossed the Jordan River, traveled sig- uh, significant distance down to Judah. The point is, it wasn't Joab looking for a fight. It's Abner's looking for a fight. Abner travels in close to Judah's territory looking for a fight. As a picture of the kingdom of this world, this is what the kingdom of this world does. Why? Because this is what the God of this world does too. We can always expect the kingdom of hell to look for a fight, to try to pick a fight. Why? Because who we're ta- who are we talking about? It, it's Satan. It's the accuser of the brethren, the destroyer, the thief who comes to steal and destroy and even kill for that matter. And first Peter chapter five, verse eight, Peter likens him to a lion seeking whom he may devour. He's looking for a fight. It shouldn't surprise us if we go through seasons of spiritual warfare. When we choose one side, again, the other side we can expect to come after us. This is exactly what's happening. Abner comes down close to the land that David's dwelling in, trying to pick a fight with David's men. And he's going to get what he came for. Second Samuel chapter 2, verse 14 Then Abner said to Joab, let the young men now arise and compete for us. And Joab said, let them arise. So they arose and went over by number, 12 from Benjamin, followers of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 from the servants of David. So Abner suggests that they have a 12 on 12 battle. Let's just settle this now, 12, 12 verse 12, so we don't just have our whole armies demolished. And let's see what happens. Well, it's going to get a little out of hand. Look at verse 16. And each one grasps his own, uh, his opponent, by the head and thrust his sword in its opponent's side so they fell down together therefore that place was called the field of sharp swords which is in Gibeon so there was a very fierce battle that day and Abner said to the men of Israel uh, and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David so it seems that this 12 on 12 
uh, matchup, it escalated rather quickly. Okay, we don't know who crossed which line, but we see that ultimately it turns out to a full-on battle. Okay, the, both the armies, the men that are there are engaging in this battle and the text is clear to communicate to us. David's men are whooping up on Ishbosheth's men. Like it's not even a fair fight. They're taking them out. It says, uh, Abner, the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. The text continues in verse 18. Now, the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab and Abishai and Asahel. And Asahel was as fleet of foot as a wild gazelle. Okay, so we see Zeruiah, if you want to write this down, um, in 1 Chronicles 2.16, we see that this was the sister of David, okay? So these are literally David's nephews, okay? These three men are David's nephews. Now, we know David was the youngest of eight children, okay? So these nephews are likely uh, very close in age. Does anybody have anything like that? Like you got um, a niece or a nephew that's like around your same age because they're like your parents had like a bunch of kids or, yeah, right? So that's what we're talking about here. They're probably very close in age. These are the nephews. Nephews of David and these guys are the real deal. Okay, we see some things in uh, 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 in the chronicles about these men and how mighty of warriors they are. This isn't the family you want to mess with. Okay, but Abner, he did. The text continues. Important. We see in verse eighteen that one of these brothers, Asahel. He was as fleet as foot as a wild gazelle, meaning he was fast. You heard the term, they, they run like a gazelle, right? It's biblical. Second Samuel chapter 2, verse 19. So Asahel pursued Abner, and in going, he did not turn to the right hand or to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, are you Asahel? He answered, I am. And Abner said to him, turn aside to your right hand or to your left and lay hold on one of the young men and take his armor for yourself. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. So Abner uh, said again to Asahel, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then should I, could I face your brother Joab? However, he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the blunt end of the spear so that the spear came out of his back and he fell down there and died on the spot. So it was that, uh, so it was that as many as came to the place where Asahel fell down and died stood still. Okay, so just to paint the picture, I think it's pretty self-explanatory. We got this guy that's really fast on David's side, and he's chasing the commander of the army of Israel. Okay, Asahel is chasing this guy, and he's catching him. He knows he's gaining on him, and what is he thinking? If I wipe out the commander of the army of Israel, then the kingdom's David's. What are the because Ishbosheth? We see him. He's kind of a timid guy. He's not the warrior type of guy. He's kind of like a puppet king. We'll talk about that next week. But Asahel is thinking, I could end this whole battle right now and then David can become king. And let's not fool ourselves, Asahel surely plans on killing Abner if he catches him. But Abner says, hey bud, you better back off. Apparently Asahel wanted to take his armor as like a trophy, like I killed the commander of Israel. He's like, if you want somebody's armor, take it. This must have been a cultural thing. Take one of the other men that's slain or whatever. So Asahel, because he's gaining on him, he thinks, oh, I'm going to take Abner out. I'm going to have victory. All these things, I'll be prominent, whatever the case may be. But Abner, being a seasoned warrior and a commander, he says, basically, you think you got the upper hand, but 
but I'm wiser than you and I'm going to get you. You're actually at the disadvantage. Asahel, he doesn't turn. He continues following. Abner continues to warn him, hey man, I don't want to make this, turn this into a family feud, okay? Because I know your brothers and I know there's no way this is going to end well. If I kill you, they're going to come after me. I don't know how they had this whole dialogue while they were running. Like, I'm not really sure how that happened, but it happened. So uh, they had to be out of breath, right? You're running with armor and all these different things, whatever. Um, so anyways, we see that he just apparently takes his spear and he as Asahel's catching up to him, he just stabs him backwards all the way through his body. And now Asahel is dead. Abner tried to warn him, but Asahel didn't listen. This is going to cause huge problems in the future. As I mentioned, this isn't a family that you want to mess with. Joab, from this point forward, is now going to be determined to get vengeance against Abner. And we'll see that next week. 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 24. Joab and Abishai also pursued Abner. So it appears they see their brother that was slain. So now they're going after Abner to avenge their brother. And the sun was going down when they came to the hill of Ammah, which is before Giah, by the road to the wilderness of Gibeon. Now the children of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became a unit and took their stand on top of the hill. Okay, so now um, you know the saying, fighting an uphill battle, right? It's harder. So these guys, now Abner gets his people in a position where they're uphill, so they're fighting downhill. So they have somewhat of an advantage, okay? Somewhat, but David's men are mightier, so uh, they might have won. We don't know what's gonna, uh, what would have happened. All we know is what did happen. Look at verse 26. Then Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the later end, latter end? How long will it be then until you tell the people to return from pursuing their brethren? So basically Abner is saying, hey, that's enough for one day. This was a plea for peace. Now this is probably uh, more to Abner's advantage uh, than to Joab's. Yes, they have the advantage as far as the uphill battle. But basically, as we look at the scene, uh, David's men are much uh, more mighty than Abner's men. So again, we don't know what's happened. Uh, Abner says, hey, let's be done with this. And so Joab responds in verse 27. Joab said, as God lives, unless you had spoken, surely then by morning, all the people would have given up pursuing their brethren. So Joab blew a trumpet and all the people stood still and did not pursue Israel anymore, nor did they fight anymore. So Joab decides to call off his men. Now, why is he doing this? Um, He likely thought he was making a wise call. He's probably thinking, okay, if we continue to to fight, it's got to end somewhere. If it doesn't end now, we're going to cause a full out civil war against Israel and Judah. Okay, so he's probably trying to err on the side of wisdom. We see it doesn't actually work out for him in the end. Second Samuel chapter two, verse 29. Then Abner and his men went on all that night through the plain, crossed over the Jordan and went through all Bithron. And they came to uh, Mahananaim. So Joab returned from pursuing Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, 
there were missing of David's servants, 19 men and Asahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin and Abner's men, 360 men who died. Okay, so 360 men of Abner's men of, of Israel, they died and only 19 of David's men. This also gives us a picture of the type of people that the Lord is calling Okay, it's not always about strength and numbers. It's about strength of character. And we see Jesus use this awesome illustration when he basically challenged the disciples and us in Luke chapter 14 of uh, he basically taught, count the cost of discipleship. What is discipleship going to cost? Because it's going to cost you something. Okay, and he says he uses this illustration. I love it. Luke chapter 14, verse 31, he says, or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000 or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. In other words, if the king has the right 10,000 guys, he can wipe out the 20,000. If he has the right guys, if he has quality 10,000 warriors, then it doesn't matter how many uh, warriors the other guy has if they're not truly warriors. And this is a challenge for us as believers in Christ. The Bible tells us that we're called to be good soldiers of Jesus Christ. We're, we're supposed to be like one of those 10,000. Not that we have the ability to wipe out 20,000 people. The reality that is being referred to is the, um, uh, the dedication and the character of following the Lord Jesus Christ as a soldier. See, this is the type of men that David had following him. Men of character, men who were valiant, men who were obviously flawed and not perfect, but these guys were warriors. Second Samuel chapter 3, verse 1. This is really where this text ends. I don't know why it's separated the way that it is. Uh, this is where we'll close. Second Samuel 3, 1. Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, but David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. So despite Joab's efforts to uh, prevent a civil war from happening, it still happened. This long war continues to go on. And this war, as we mentioned, is a picture of the war and battle between the kingdom of hell and the kingdom of God. It's also a picture of the battle that goes on internally in each and every one of us. In both of those battles... They're long. And that's exactly what this text says. It's a long war. And that's the fifth and final point. The war is long. The war is long. The battle that we're in is a long battle. The Lord has been fighting with Satan from the beginning. Yeah, he could have just wiped them out right off the bat, but he even uses Satan to work out his plan and work out his agenda. There's also reality that the war that goes on inside of us, this internal battle, it's a lifelong battle. It's a lifelong battle. And the Bible tells us is exactly that, a battle in Galatians chapter 5. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 17 Galatians 5.17 says this, For the flesh lusts against the spirit, 
and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. They're contrary to one another in the sense that they're at war with one another. There's literally a war that's going on in each and every one of us. There's the battle between the Spirit and the flesh. And this is a battle that we'll be a part of for the rest of our lives. But we have a responsibility in this battle. Later on in Galatians chapter 5, Paul tells us to crucify the flesh. Deny it. Put it to death. Quit feeding it. The more you feed it, the more it's going to grow. It's like a monster that's out of control. As we feed the flesh, it gets bigger, it gets stronger, it grows and grows and grows. But guess what? Same holds true when we feed the Spirit. And when we feed the Spirit, how do we feed the Spirit? Well, it's getting in the Word. It's doing our devotions. It's seeking God. It's engaging in worship, not just in the church, but worship as a lifestyle. It's praying. It's fasting. It's using all the spiritual tools and discipline that God has given us. Ultimately, uh, the battle between the flesh uh, and the Spirit is a battle of choices. It's a battle of decisions. It's choosing each and every moment of each and every day. I'm going to choose the Spirit. I'm going to choose what the Spirit's leading me in. I'm going to choose to be spiritual. I'm going to choose what God wants for me. And I'm not going to choose the flesh. Okay? There's going to be times where we give into the flesh because we're imperfect. But the reality of our sanctification process, meaning the process by which the Lord makes us holy or transforms us, there should be more and more spiritual decisions that happen over time. It's a long war. But it's a war that will be won eventually. And it's a war as we see here lastly in 2 Samuel chapter 3 back to verse 1. It says, David grew stronger and stronger and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Exactly what I was saying. Spirit's got to grow stronger and stronger in our lives as the flesh goes, grows weaker and weaker. Now we also know this is foreshadowing a final battle that is to come, the battle of Armageddon, where the Lord will come back and wipe out the Antichrist and the false prophet and all the nations that come against Israel and accept the mark of the beast. And we know this is a battle that the Lord promises. Yes, He's already uh, claimed victory in the sense, but He's coming back to really claim it practically, if you will. We know we have victory in Christ. Faith is the victory. But sometimes when we look at our lives, it doesn't always feel like that. It doesn't always feel like the Lord won. It doesn't always feel like we're victorious. Sometimes it feels like the gates of hell are prevailing. Sometimes it feels like the enemy's winning. There was a time, and I'll finish with this. I remember I had a, a close friend of mine. Um, this was when I was in Calvary House and a really close friend. And uh, he ended up becoming a, a leader of the ministry. And shortly after he fell and he went out and was smoking crack and getting prostitutes. And uh, and then he came back one day, he was just gone and he came back. And, and dude, I was crushed. This is one of my closest friends. We used to get in the word together all the time, talk about this stuff all the time. And then we go to this uh, event. It was like a Jeremy Camp concert. And uh, we're serving at this event. And my my friend, people are giving him a hard time like, bro, yeah, yeah, I knew this was going to happen to you, right? I knew you were going to fail. I knew all these different things and I wasn't there in the moment, but he gets in this altercation with one of these guys and, and they just have it out and they end up getting in a fight. They end up getting in a fight and I'm like, what? 
Could it be any worse? And, and I remember looking at like, are you serious, man? This guy had so much promise. And I remember praying and I got down uh, in my chair on this bus and I was just weeping and crying out to God. God, why does it feel like the enemy's winning? Like, why does it, this guy had so much promise. He could have done so much for your kingdom. And then this thing happens. Why? And I'm weeping literally. And as soon as I look up, there's this big truck in front of us. And on the back in the dust, it says, Jesus is coming back. It says, Jesus is coming back. And it was just an answer. Like, yeah, things might seem like this, but things aren't always what they appear to be. Things aren't always what they appear to be. And that was a big thing that the Lord taught us in 1 Samuel, right? God doesn't see as man sees. <laughs> He's seeing things different. He sees the finished product. He sees the victory that has already been won for us. See, God is determined to establish his kingdom, not just on this earth, but also in our lives. And though the battle is long, and though it's tough, and though it's difficult, we can have faith and confidence that, yes, not only is the Lord going to come back to claim victory, but he's always going to, also going to claim victory over our lives personally. What do I mean? It's Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So he's completing the work until the day that Jesus comes back. If we're truly his, then he promises he's going to establish his kingdom in our hearts and on this earth forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. God, for the victory that we share in you. Lord, we, we know um, that we're in a war, that um, life isn't a playground, it's a, it's a, a war field, it's a battlefield, God, and, and uh, I ask that you would give us confidence once again in, in your kingdom, that you will establish it just as you said, uh, yes on this earth, yes forever, but also in our hearts, God. And I pray if there's anyone uh, going through that struggle where they feel like the enemy seems like they're winning, that we would recognize, Lord, just as David's kingdom grew stronger and stronger, your kingdom is being established more and more in our hearts each and every day as you purpose to sanctify us, transform us, and make us holy. In Jesus' name, amen.